What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. John Wilner has been on a world tour, and I, I we have to start today's episode there, Wilner. Give it. Where did you go? What did you see? Did you run with the Bulls? I heard you may have run. You ran with the Bulls or something. What's going on? Well, if I were ever in Pamplona, it would be jogging with the Bulls, which would probably result in me getting, you know, one of those horns in my rear. But uh, no, we did go to Spain, a uh, family trip to Spain. And I'll tell you, it was great to, to get away. Uh, my previous vacation was scheduled for July 1st of 2022. So I think everybody could guess how that went. Uh, so it was nice to to get away for a week and especially not have to worry about media rights deal happening when I was nine time zones away. Give us an idea because, you know, did you see sports in Spain? Did you get a taste of what European sports culture is about? We did. I got a taste of a uh, high level. We went to a Barcelona game. Uh Barcelona against Girano, uh, it was at Camp Nou, and it was fantastic. Uh, the place would not, it seats, what, 99,000? It was built, I think, in the 50s. It would not pass any U.S. code for uh, <laughs> uh, access for disabilities or uh, safety and security. We were in the fourth deck, which is actually pretty close to the field, but it was like descending Mount Everest. It's so steep and it's rickety. Uh, but it was fantastic atmosphere. I think they had about 80, 85,000 in there. You know, it was, it was great to see a, a Barca game. It was zero, zero. We still had a great time. Give me an idea aside from just the idea that the uh, building codes were violated, the, but you know, just the way that European fans root versus American fans root, or maybe just the atmosphere of a major soccer event in, in Europe. Yeah, you know, they're singing and they're they're cheering for, you know, the nuances. Soccer's got a lot of nuance, right? So uh, a nice uh, clear or just the way they set up a, a whole a run uh, in the open field, those things get uh get cheers the crowd it's I, I don't want to say it's a more sophisticated crowd than a american sport but but soccer itself requires uh it, you know the the things that folks cheer about a lot of times are not just the goals and it, it was just great and they're singing the whole time and and you know they got the the barcelona fight song and it was great you know part of it too is when we got bought our tickets they said you you're not allowed in the stadium if you're wearing any real madrid clothing or garb or swag oh wow uh, which i thought was awesome and i was wondering god should they adapt that here like could oregon have a no husky swag rule uh, for the Washington football game, you know, what that would be like, just the equivalent here in trying to uh, apply that rule. But it tells you a lot about what what things are like over there when they you can't wear the enemy teams, anything involving the enemy team. Yeah, I've seen some cases where teams or fan bases will buy out a bunch of tickets to try to, you know, make a dent in the home crowd in, in a stadium. But um, you know, I, the only thing that I've seen that comes close to that was the, the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Like China didn't allow a lot of visitors from other countries to have visas. They 
they wanted a home court advantage in every arena and every venue. And I, you know, as opposed to like Athens or Sydney or London, going into the venues in Beijing were like 90 to 95 percent like pro China. And so I imagine there is a mob mentality that permeates at a uh, European soccer match like that. And you're you're obviously rooting for, uh, uh, you know, you're, who did you root for, even though you didn't have the colors on? Oh, we rooted for Barcelona. My son's kind of a Barcelona fan, so uh, we we definitely rooted for them. The Girano fans were like in this little cage in the top of the upper deck. There was probably, I don't know, 500 of them. And the cage is designed so you can't throw anything out of there because obviously, uh, you know, a more heated rival, there would be issues with them, you know, fans throwing stuff onto the field or in the crowd. So that that was fun. It, I the only other international soccer game I'd been to, I went to a uh, a Boca Juniors versus River Plate game, and those are two you know huge uh, Buenos Aires t- clubs, and they hate each other. And when we were left the stadium, they had it was a River Plate uh, home game. The uh, no, it's Boca Juniors home game, and the River Plate fans were funneled out of the stadium. You know, and they couldn't in a way that they were blocked off from engaging at all with uh, the Boca Junior fans. And then you exit the stadium and there's these huge fences leading you to the subway. So there was no way for the Boca Junior fans and the River Plate fans to have any kind of inter- physical interaction with each other. And that kind of reminded me of of the way Barca had things set up. I mean, obviously, so much of it is set up just for the the when Real comes in. Uh, but it's just fascinating to see how you know the the depth of uh that they go to on the security front because they are such massive rivalries right i mean barca and real is as big a rivalry probably as there is in any sport in the world do they do concessions right at european soccer games because i found some other countries don't have a damn clue wilner when it comes to concessions they could learn from yeah, no. american sporting events it was pretty bare bones it was pretty bare bones but you know the, the fans are in their seats for the whole half so you at halftime you go and we were out looking for uh my wife and I went to to try to find water and and uh you know the they're selling the very basics there's popcorn and and a, th- a few things like that but it is not i mean it is all geared toward the 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 competition itself right and that that makes sense barca's barca it was it was fantastic and i i took my son to the barca uh the museum and the store the next day and we got a st- stadium tour it was the the barca uh the the store at camp new is three stories and the middle the middle story has got an amphitheater where you can sit and watch barcelona highlights uh on a big screen tv i mean it is set up to just print money and obviously a club like that they print money wilner uh we gotta get into the pac-12 stuff but i just love that you got that experience i hope that Pac-12 stadiums will have that kind of enthusiasm next season. To to your earlier point, they're going to let anybody and everybody into some of these stadiums around the conference that have struggled with attendance. But love that you got that perspective, especially like with your kids. Think about the, like the exposure your kids got to see that. I mean, it's just that's special. They'll never forget that. Oh yeah, and and the reason we went to Spain, my kids they go to public school, but they're in a Spanish immersion, so they are basically fluent. Uh, in Spanish. So we told him, all right, we'll go to Spain uh, and you guys are going to have to do all the talking. And, you know, you can 
Uh, we told him you can uh, you can eat whatever you can order as long as you order in Spanish. The next thing I know, my 11 year old cerveza is coming out of his mouth. So that was uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but that was the reason we went was so that my kids could put this year, the years of Spanish uh, schooling to to use. And they got us around the country. It was great. Right before you left, uh, there was an announcement from the Pac-12. Jamie Zaninovich, deputy commissioner. Uh, the supervisor of basketball in the conference. He's leaving for a uh, job with an outside entity. What did you make of that? Uh, read the tea leaves here. Zinedovich, uh, you know, tapping out of the conference. Why is he leaving? What does it mean? You know, I well, it's a big loss. He did a lot, and he certainly is as well-versed in, in – in men's college basketball as, as almost anybody in the country, right? He was a commissioner of the WCC when they added, uh, when they added BYU, he's been on the selection committee. He knows college basketball uh, as well as anybody anywhere. So from that perspective, you know, it, and the, what he has done with, you know, as, as uh, chief of operations, running the conference on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, you know, working working uh, on the the media rights, he's part of the inner circle. So it's it's a big loss. I kind of figured once he wasn't, you know, you're the deputy and you you don't get the commissioner position. Uh, so I figured at some point he was going to leave, right? I mean, you 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 want to do other things at that point. Yeah, and I think look, it's a loss for the conference, but also you know when George Klyovkov took over for Larry Scott, I thought it was really interesting that he didn't come in and clean house like he you know he kept larry scott's lieutenants and his people there now he's gone you know more than a year year and a half you know he may be this may be a signal that george kliovkov wants his own people in that room finally like you know i don't i don't know if he's going to make moves on the marketing front i don't know if he's going to make moves on the pr front but i just thought it was interesting when he came in given sort of the culture of the Pac-12 headquarters under Larry Scott that Klyovkov didn't bring uh, more of his own people in. So I, I'll be curious to see what he does now. He obviously, uh, the CFO and the head of the Pac-12 networks were both uh, pushed out, and uh, now you see Zaninovich leaving on his own accord. He'll still probably have some dealings with the conference, but I'll be curious to see how George Klyovkov fills those roles. Were you surprised you yeah. kept so many of Larry's people? Uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, but don't you think it's interesting though, because I th I feel like the the culture and the conference, the relationships between the campuses and the conference office has changed pretty significantly uh, in the new regime. Even though the only position that really changed. Was the commissioner well? I, I mean, Woody Dixon, the general counsel, leaving in the, uh, you know, he left. I think before Larry Scott left, but that was also a big one. But the the culture has changed just with the changing at the top, and it to me it speaks a lot of about the fact that so many of the issues that they had internally with the schools being on a different page from the conference office and the lack of trust. So many of those things were just because of Larry Scott, right? Because they have changed. A lot of it's changed, and most of the personnel has not changed, except for the guy at the top. So I think that's interesting. You know, Wilner, I, I think as we watch spring football, I'm thinking about, you know, what am I looking for? Obviously, USC, Arizona State, Arizona went last week. I think uh, Kenny Dillingham 
was not happy with the turnout at Arizona State. He came out and he criticized the fan base. I liked it. I liked that he's setting expectations. Uh, I you know sounded a little like Dana Altman, didn't yeah. it? After the but NIT game, I think it's a different thing when you come in as a first time, first year head coach, and you look around, you don't see people getting it, like getting what you're trying to sell. I think it you're well within your right to say, hey, uh, look, are you with me? Are are you on board with this? We're going to need more of you in this stadium. Like I like that he that he had that call out because it sets expectations. Like for Altman, I kind of wonder like with Oregon, like just win more basketball games and more people are going to show up, right? But I also think that Dana's frustrations at all uh, at Oregon are with uh, the the lack of support that he's not getting with marketing and game operations and you know the experience at Matthew Knight Arena especially season ticket holders are telling me that it's just flat. It's flat and there's no energy there. And part of it is on the team. You got to be better. Uh, I think it was a frustrating season for Oregon, but part of it is on game operations and trying to look around the conference and figure out what other schools are doing and bring that to to Oregon. But I like that Dillingham's calling out fans like, you know, good for him. Good for him. It's I think that the the football and basketball pieces are inseparable there, right? I mean, I see a lot of arenas uh, where they're half full, especially in November and December. And part of that is because I think internally, the the operations piece within each athletic department, everything is so geared toward football that they just simply can't handle also putting maximum effort into marketing basketball. And so it really is just, uh, you know, it, it's just about the the team itself and the wins and losses because you can't, you, they just don't have the the people power to to do what they can for for marketing. So if the product's not good, uh, there's you know it's going to struggle to draw interest and attendance. And I think that's that's what we're seeing with the Pac-12. And they're losing a lot of games in November and December. And I think part of the reason they're losing a lot of those games at home is because the the crowds aren't there, right? And so it's for a a visiting team coming in. It's kind of a neutral court environment if you're going into wherever and they're playing, you know, 50% capacity, 33% capacity. It's a neutral court. So that makes it even harder on the Pac-12, the the team that's hosting, uh, because they don't have that home court advantage. And I think if you look at the Big Ten or the Big 12, those games in November and December, they've got bigger crowds. So it is a home court advantage. And Pac-12, that's another area where Pac-12 is struggling a little bit. Yeah, and I think, you know, while it's not a 100% like accurate predictor of your fall attendance in football, you know, if you don't have some enthusiasm inside the stadium in spring ball, that is a marker that I think you should pay attention to. I think Oregon will have some enthusiasm. Oregon State will have enthusiasm. Utah will. Washington will. I think there'll be some at Washington State this weekend. But let's talk about where the uh, circus is going to be. It'll be in Boulder, Coach Prime. And the businesses surrounding the campus go in bananas. I wrote uh, I wrote about that this week. That you know, there's a uh, there's a couple of businesses in the area that are staffing double, ordering double the food, beer and wine. Uh, they're treating it like a regular big time college football weekend in Boulder. Well, and this gets back to investment, right? You invest in the coach, and you're getting the rewards. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, whether or not. Coach Prime wins a game this year or wins five games or seven games, whatever he wins, it's already worth that Rick George, the athletic director at Colorado. This is a home run hire. They sold out season tickets in mid-April. They've never sold them out before August. It's been 27 years since they had 
football season tickets sold out. Um, 260 media credentials for for the spring game this weekend. Um, there's you know ESPN broadcasting it. The halo effect to the rest of the campus at Colorado in the community in Boulder is already a home run. I mean, I you know I I will draw the only parallel I have in my career in covering sports is Jerry Tarkanian when he went to Fresno State. They they made the same investment. They hired Tark. They brought him in. You know, it didn't really result in a bunch of Final Four appearances. You know, got to the NCAA tournament twice in seven years. But they built the Save Mart Center. They broke ground on an arena. They raised a ton of money. They parlayed that hire into something bigger in raising their profile. Colorado, whether or not Deion Sanders stays two years or five years or three years and he's gone somewhere or he fizzles out, they they have to parlay this enthusiasm into something bigger, and they're they're well on their way right now. It's it's just a really smart move. Yeah, and what has Klievkov been hammering the presidents on for almost two years? Invest in football. The the ROI of football is gigantic for your entire co- uh, campus community, right? If if your donors are thrilled with football, much better chance they're going to contribute to the engineering building or a new library or whatever. And that's been uh, something he's been hammering on. And USC really, you know, kind of the first to take the plunge, right, with the Lincoln Riley. And we don't know exactly what they're paying him, but it is a ton of money, more than any Pac-12 coach has ever been paid. And we saw what was the only spring game in 2022 televised by ESPN was USC. Only spring game in the whole country. Only spring game in the whole country televised by ESPN this spring, Colorado, right? So SC bought in and they invested in a high profile profile coach and there was immediate return. Colorado invested in a high profile coach, immediate return. I think other schools are doing it in, in slightly different ways, right? Washington shelled out a ton of money to keep Ryan Grubb, their offensive coordinator, maybe to the extent that they couldn't make a change in men's basketball. And that's something we could talk about one day is, you know, if you've only got a certain amount of money, are you better off spending it on your football staff or your men's basketball coach? Uh, but we're slowly, it seems like we're, there's more and more examples of the presidents and chancellors understanding that the more resources they put into football, the better it is for their entire campus. It, that has to get to bat men's basketball uh, eventually, right? Like, I think eventually it's got to get to men's basketball, but we have seen some of those investments in football. I think Oregon State is doing some investing as well. Oregon's always been there. But to your point on Colorado being televised by ESPN, only spring game, huge platform. Coach Prime's going to have everybody mic'd up. He's mic'd up. His son's going to be mic'd up. They're, you know, it's going to be a circus in and, you know, it's not a school record for credentials. The school record is 1989 against Nebraska. They had 601 credentials for a regular season game. But nobody else in the country is going to get 260 credentials for a spring game. This is – it's ridiculous and, you know, good on them. And then you look at the regular season schedule, winner, and, you know, Colorado starts with TCU. They're going to be a double-digit underdog uh, on the road in that one. They're going to get Nebraska at home. They're going to get Colorado State at home. And you can see what the Pac-12 tried to do. They put Oregon and USC as the first two conference games. I, I think they're gaming for for game day to try to be there. In in the event that Colorado gets off to like a two and one start somehow, uh, I would look for game day in Eugene uh, on that conference Pac-12 opener. 
Yeah, oh, it's perfect schedule for them. And the fact is, Nebraska is really their biggest rival, right? Uh, and that's the game that you know is the that's kind of the centerpiece for their whole their whole home season and their season ticket plan. And uh, who knows, game day may go to that one, uh, given the history between those two schools. Uh, but no, it's we're seeing exactly what. Uh, we've seen in other schools, right? Clemson is another example where they have plowed resources into football over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, I mean, even Alabama is a great case study for this because not only have, uh, obviously, as Nick Saban dominated the sport, but when you look at things at Alabama like the hiring of deans, the applications to for admission nationally. You know, you get more applications for admissions. You can become more selective with with admittance. You can uh, use that to help your, uh, you know, your profile in U.S. News and World Report, which helps you hire deans. I mean, there are so many benefits to successful football, and it seems like Pac-12 presidents uh are are kind of cluing in on that and it it's going to take a while but we've definitely seen some some returns on investments at in boulder for sure and in and at usc we have received you know in the last two weeks a uh, uh you know a kind of a yellow flag from the pac-12 on the media rights front uh they are yeah re- what do you make of that yeah they're reframing the expectations i i sort of um look on one hand i think that the conference probably got out over its skis. You had one president saying, hey, I expect something in mid-March. You had another president saying, I expect something in mid-April. You had one uh, third president saying March or April. Um, and now you've got the Pac-12, you know, trying to negotiate behind the scenes. I think I'm reading it more as they want to be prudent. They want to get the best possible deal. It could be that uh, a new a new player came into the equation. It could also be that they liked the numbers but didn't love the numbers they were seeing and they want to wait a little bit and you know and it's and it's their right to do that they're under no obligation but i i just continue to hear that the members are galvanized the members are committed all this nonsense that came out and people reporting in the last couple of weeks colorado's going to meet the trustees are going to meet rick george the idea colorado shot that down on social media as did several sources who were in the room with those presidents and chancellors as part of the CEO group, I was told that is not at all what is being said behind closed doors. But I just think it was, you know, none of us really know how long a media rights negotiation takes. We can only look at the Big Ten and the timeline there. We can only talk to people who have negotiated deals like this before to try to get a sense of it. But I didn't take that as, you know, the, the ship is sinking. I'm not buying the gloom and doom. I think the conference is going to get a deal. I don't think anybody's leaving. Nobody in the four corners is going. The Oregon and Washington are staying in the conference. I maintain that, and I think people who are saying otherwise are just wishing and hoping. Well, it's clear. A couple of things have become clear to me, and and you know, it's hard without hindsight to know in, in real time because there's so few leaks and so few people actually know what's going on with the details. But it seems clear to me that they didn't really get into the negotiations in earnest, full speed ahead until January. I really think now, whether it was for whatever reason, the UCLA thing with the Regents or something else, it just doesn't seem to me like they got into this full speed until January. And if that is in fact the case, then you could see why it's taking time. Uh, Certainly Amazon and Apple dealing with them. Things are slower than when you're dealing with an ESPN 
I mean, I also think that if they had a great deal, they would have taken it, right? I mean, so clearly they don't have an optimal deal. They're trying to kind of make the best of of what's out there. And I think a lot of folks are not seeing the nuance just because they don't have a great deal that they've already accepted doesn't mean they're going to end up with a terrible deal. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But there is that middle ground where it's like, you know, kind of shrug your shoulder and say, you know what, it's good enough. We'll stick together and sign this contract. My guess is that's the most likely outcome. And I also think it, and this is just for the most part, university presidents don't do, don't really know how to talk to the media about sports. And I don't know exactly, you know, there's a few exceptions. I think Robert Robbins and Kirk Schultz in the PAC 12 are, are pretty good about it, but there was some kind of disconnect between what was going on at the conference office with the negotiations and what the presidents were saying. And I, you know, I don't know what the cause of that disconnect was necessarily, but that seems pretty clear that they, the presidents were a little bit ahead of where the reality was with the negotiations. I have not liked the entire handling of sort of the, uh, you know, the PR and the, uh, the public-facing side of this last eight months from the Pac-12 standpoint. I think when we look back, when they get a deal, we will look back at the damage that was done in the eight months of letting other people tell the story, uh, not really positioning yourself in a, in a place where you're telling your own story or managing expectations, some presidents coming out, others staying quiet, people waiting until you know the trolls on social media you know got more active to... To really say what they mean, I think it's been a, it's been a disaster from the Pac-12 from a PR standpoint. I think that's something they have to fix moving forward. It's it's an old school approach, right? I mean, typically you don't talk about the details of a negotiation uh, or try to manage it uh, publicly, right? I mean, I'm sure that the presidents and the negotiating partners appreciate the fact that Kliakov has been radio silent and is not talking about that. But in an era of Twitter, in an era where there are, uh, you know, factions that are tr potentially trying to disrupt your negotiations, either to, to uh, you know, uh, implode the conference or undermine your, your valuation, it's a very risky strategy. There's no doubt, but it's an old school strategy in an era of Twitter and, you know, everything is news 24-7. The conference now is, you know, obviously continuing to negotiate media rights. Spring football's on. Uh, meanwhile, you've got legislation in California that would force schools to pay athletes that is out there floating around. And I don't think people understand it, Wilner. What is your read on what's going on in California and how that affects college athletes? Yeah, boy, this is a. Uh, I don't know that we should get into too many details it, and. and it's got to play out, but there is a, a new bill in California that would make NIL kind of seem like amateur hour in a lot of ways. And it just passed a higher education committee yesterday in Sacramento and is headed toward appropriations. And basically, it would force athletic departments to pay uh, the athletes in the in the major revenue sports directly. Right? They they you would have a, a certain amount of money, and it. That would be based on how much revenue the athletic department is generating, uh, and they would pay, you know, twenty five thousand a year and uh, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars over the career of a particular athlete in football or men's basketball. Right, so that is taking revenue 
from the it's not like NIL where it's money from the private sector and it's not like the the Alston case that the Supreme Court uh approved what two summers ago where you know you can pay for the school can pay for academic uh success this is money directly from the athletic department going straight to the players it's a revenue sharing program and to me you know it's another sign that eventually and i don't know if it's going to be in two years four years ten years the athletes in football and men's basketball are going to be employees or semi-employees and that is going to be that that's the line in the sand for a lot of schools either you're in with that business model or you're not and i think we could probably identify some schools in the pac-12 that would be in with the business model of having uh, athletes as employees and probably some schools that would be very hesitant don't you think that's what's going to that's what's going to more than anything else frame the future of college football is the athletes as employees yeah it in if help me out with this, if legislation is passed in California, that's the first state that moves in that direction. How much of a disadvantage are the California schools, including, you know, I, I noticed that USC had a athletic department uh, vice president testify against it. And, you know, there's some other interested parties in and out of the state of California. Yeah, well, I, I think it'd be like NIL, right, where it started in California, it quickly spread across the country, probably a similar thing. And, you know, the National Labor Relations Board is has reviewing whether employees, uh, athletes at USC should be deemed employees. And the head of the NLRB is very much in favor of, of college football players being, being termed employees. Now that comes with a lot of potential downsides, right? Cause that if you can get cut from a team, if you're an employee, right. Uh, that's, you know, that's an issue that runs counter to the traditional look at uh, view of college athletics, but that is to me that whole thing about the employees is a bigger deal than realignment now the expansion of the playoff the, every it is going to shape the whole future of the sport and i don't know if it'll be for the better or for the worse and this california bill is kind of like uh the seed for this whole thing in some ways i mean what do you think would do you think which schools are going to not are going to kind of balk at paying players straight, basically straight salaries is what it amounts to. Well, I think I think there's a bigger philosophical question because I know like athletes uh, for years and in, even in this NIL era have talked about wanting to participate in the success, uh, the financial success of football and men's basketball. But what happens to the non-revenue generating sports? What happens to the Olympic sports and athletes in those sports? Do, the, do those sports just get cut because universities don't want to pay and can't afford to pay? Also, if you're going to become an employee, you are now opening yourself up to, um, you know, is will it be possible for football coaches to do what NFL coaches do and cut a player and not have to pay him, not have to give him a scholarship, bring them in? Take a look at them in, you know, in fall camp and then cut them and turn them loose. Like there's some tentacles here that I, I don't even think like, you know, a lot of college athletes who have eligibility are going to be totally comfortable with. But if you are going to be an employee, now you're going to be subject to laws and rules that also protect the employer. So, yep. um, you know, Mike Leach, may he rest in peace. One of the last conversations I had with him, you know, he talked about NIL. He talked about Transfer Portal. He said, gosh, you know, if we're going to have these things, I would love to have the ability to cut a player if, if it's not working out and he's not producing. And 
you know, uh, you know, have a practice squad. And, and so I think you're now moving towards an NFL model. And I would just ask college athletes, look, you know, great. You're going to be an employee that you can participate in the success financially of the program. But what about fellow athletes in golf, tennis, swimming, diving, rowing? Also, are you okay knowing that, you know, your sophomore year, uh, you, you, you have a cuff, a tough couple of weeks and all of a sudden your coach goes, Hey, I don't have a roster spot for you and you're cut. Uh, that's, that's, you know, a conversation that I think we all need to have as this moves yeah. along. Well, and the California bill, you know, does not is attempting to basically treat the athletes as employees, but have them not deemed employees legally. And I don't know, you know, long, long term, I don't know if that's, if that's going to fly, it'll be interesting to see how that, how that, uh, unfolds but you know the athlete, the olympic piece is is crucial and i think you know that the because the olympic sports are the the pipeline for the us olympic team and the importance that the olympic team has nationally i think that that is like the thing that could get congress to actually act on some of this stuff uh with college athletics is the threat if the system is undermined by the whole by basically paying football and basketball players, if the whole system is undermined and it threatens the uh, the Olympic sports teams, that threatens the Olympic talent pipeline and the Olympic movement. And that politically is could be dicey enough for Congress that it would actually act on all this stuff, because otherwise college college football is just kind of spinning around here and it's not not in a good way. Yeah, and I'll, t- I'll say one other thing. Like, I, I don't think I'm alone in saying this. Maybe some of our listeners agree, but, you know, I, I, I just love the sports, right? And I love watching college athletes play sports and compete. All of this other stuff, NIL, like, you know, bless the athletes that can earn for their name, image, likeness. I've always supported that. But I don't like the idea of programs and collectives buying players, and we all know that's going on. Transfer Portal has basically created – unrestricted free agency. Everybody's on a one-year contract. I don't like that. Uh, Jake Dickert, the Washington State coach, he told me this week that, you know, he doesn't like that second window here in the spring for the transfer portal. It ends April 30th. So you have this transfer portal window in college football, the second window. Why is it necessary? You know, uh, Deion Sanders in Colorado talking about taking as many as 25 transfers between now and April 30th. Like, their roster is essentially going to be a pro roster with a whole bunch of people cut. They're already 11 over the limit. So what are we talking about here? Like, let's get back to, uh, you know, get some guardrails on name, image, likeness. Athletes should be able to earn. They should be able to transfer one time during a window at the end of the season that, that's got some guardrails on it. Uh, you know, you don't see often see coaches – and coaching staffs leaving midseason or leaving a you know a head coach of a program leaving it after spring ball, but you're going to have players who are going to do that, Wilner, between now and April 30th, and it will shape those rosters. And and you've oh, got, it's nuts. Yeah, Colorado's got like Colorado's had like four guys enter the portal in the last what 24 hours. It's crazy, but you know, then we got four months until season starts. Right, that's a long four months. But college sports are now. 12 months a year, right? Aren't they? I mean, it's great. Did you, and I saw your column today, which was really good about, about uh, a couple in Oregon, just waiting for the season. 91 and 94 years old. They've been married 72 years. And, you know, I, I got a, a, a handwritten letter 
from uh, Elizabeth Smith, who said, you know, I, I print your column out and read it to the other people at the Senior Living Center. I just loved it. I got on the phone with her and found out she's a diehard college football fan. She's dying for the season to start. She's not into name, image, likeness, and the transfer portal, but she, you know, she wants to see some football. And I think a lot of people are going to be in that boat. And I just hope that the end result is some happy medium, some middle ground where players can feel like, hey, they're able to earn like they weren't before, that uh, they can utilize college to get where they want to be like everybody else, uh, and, but we don't lose the spirit of college athletics. Isn't that the ultimate gain, uh, gain here? Uh, it, it is, I think, although it depends on who you ask because there's a lot of folks that think the spirit of college athletics is has changed and the demands placed on the athletes are such that they – the fair thing to do is to to compensate them as employees. So, I mean, it's it's changing in every regard, uh, the college athletics, and it all starts with with football, uh, you know, and and that's a an issue unto itself is the fact that football is, is the foundation for everything else. And and I think every college sports would be a lot better off if football were treated separately in every regard, separately financially, uh, separately in the calendar, the, the sports calendar, just take it and move it out and let all the other sports do their thing. And I, I think that would that would solve a lot of problems, but there is no chance, I don't think, of that ever happening. Yeah, it's happening organically at the high school level, right? Where the high school sports programs have become like the school programs. And then the kids who are geared on, you know, getting a scholarship or playing club, right? We've seen this bifurcation of high school and club sports. And, you know, a lot of the high schools saying, hey, we don't want the club coaches coaching our high school teams. And so I do think you could see that happen with football and the Olympic sports in, at the college level, where the Olympic sports become true college sports and football and men's basketball, maybe women's basketball with the new TV deal, sort of operate uh, with their own budgets and their own objectives. I'm John Canzano. You can read me exclusively at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. I always say what works for you works for me. John Wilner is here with me of the Bay Area News Group. You can read him at pac12hotline.com. He does a fantastic job. We appreciate that you listen. Please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a thing. We do uh, one episode a week in the non-college football season. We beef it up to two episodes if there's breaking news or during the college football season, but uh, excited to see some spring games this weekend. And, Wilner, uh, I appreciate you uh, being back from your vacation and rested and raring to go. It was a great vacation. I'm, I'm uh, a little bit better rested. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we got a lot to a lot to address on the podcast the next couple months, and there's going to be a lot happening in the next couple months, I think, uh, in college athletics. So uh, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us. John, I appreciate you as always. We will see you next week, everyone.